0: Uh, one of the most important barriers to biodiversity conservation is that people are less and less connected to nature. And so they don't care about conserving it. And so I think just one of the most fundamental things that we can do is just get people back out in nature and experience all the benefits of it, just reducing anxiety and, and exercising outdoors and the clean air and, um, and appreciating that biodiversity, all the different plants and animals I think that's one of the most important things that we can do is just re-engage people to nature.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at TidalInfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. Hello everyone and welcome to Pelicanus. Pelicanus is a non-profit organization focused on sharing the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. Now this is Conservation Conversations, our long-form documentary style show that highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field and to show that people have and still are making monumental differences in our world with intentional change. Head over to pelicanus.org to find all of our episodes and more. In this Conservation Conversation episode, we talk with Dr. Denise Knapp, who serves as the Director of Conservation and Research for the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden in Santa Barbara, California, a nonprofit botanic garden whose mission is to conserve California native plants and habitats for the health and well being of people and the planet. They do this through their four key tenets of understanding biodiversity, protecting rare plants, restoring habitats, and engaging and mentoring their community. Now let's let Dr. Knapp explain how each of these programs help conserve native plants in and around Santa Barbara County and the Channel Islands. All right, well again, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, Do you mind, just to kind of start things off, just kind of saying your name, your title and kind of what you do at the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden?
0: Sure, yeah. um... I'm Denise Knapp. I'm the Director of Conservation and Research at the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden. And I'm a community ecologist, so I study uh, plant-insect interactions and habitat restoration, um, invasive species. Uh, but also I do a lot of administration, so writing grant proposals and, and uh, attending meetings and things like that.
1: The fun stuff. I guess we'll kind of just dive right into the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden. Um, it's uh, I was just looking at the website, and I'd never uh, been to it and seeing the, the conservation center, uh, the, the beautiful building it is, it's like, I've, "I really want to go now. Um, and so again, looking at your website here, you know if you click on the, the "What We Do" page, there's four big tenants that I'm seeing here that says, "Understand biodiversity, conserve rare plants, restore habitats, and en- engage and mentor." If you don't mind, can you uh dive into how do those four tenants manifest themselves?
0: Yeah, that's our mantra is understand, protect, restore, and advocate or engage. Uh so I think of it as layers of a cake, sort of. So the the base layer being, I mean, if you're if your mission is to conserve California native plants like ours is. Uh, then first you have to know what those are. So our botanists basically study and describe those species. They're the ones who determine this is the species, this is that, this is how you tell the difference, here's a flora to help you do that. Uh, here's the distribution of these things, here's how we know these things are rare. Uh, all of those patterns, here's what communities they form and, and all that basic stuff. And of course the, the genetics, that's such an important component of that these days uh then the the protect part is the rare plants. so once we know which plants are rare our goal is just to make sure that you know nothing on our watch in our region goes extinct and so uh if that's as simple as taking conservation seed collections and getting them in our freezer and just making sure that we have that backup then that's the the most uh elemental thing that we can do Uh, But ideally we'll recover those species in the wild because a lot of things are rare because of what humans have done. So uh, rare plant conservation is actually really hard and takes a long time and complicated. The problem can be anywhere from the genetic level to the ecosystem level. Uh, And so we like to say that we do work from genes to ecosystems. We can tackle things anywhere along that spectrum. And so that can involve research and recovery and growing things in our nursery and and just getting new populations started, all kinds of things. Uh, Then the next layer is the restoring habitat, and that's newer for the garden. Uh, But really, you know, in this, this is the era of restoration. It's no longer enough just to set land aside. Um, We really need that um, healthy, diverse Uh, habitat to support that web of life and and all the services that's provided to us as humans Uh, and so um, figuring out how best to do that really is uh, the main thing at the garden and then um, getting involved in doing it and we're starting to uh, engage volunteers uh, in doing that work which um, you know then leads to just uh, that advocacy piece and engaging people in in making the world a, a better place. Uh, which leads to that last layer, which is advocating, engaging. Um, we help on all kinds of uh, different um, committees and working groups and steering groups and advisory groups. And uh, you know, sometimes we comment on on uh, projects that we have something to say about. Um, we do a lot of just getting out and giving lectures and field trips and workshops and things like that. Uh, we do a lot of mentoring. Uh, Working with interns as much as we can, getting them involved with the different things that we do. Um, a lot of our interns and uh, and technicians have gone on to grad school, and uh, so just the the gamut. I see that as kind of the crunchy layer, the, the icing on that cake. Those three layers.
1: That's huge. Like I was looking at this website, and I'm you know. I obviously knew a little bit about what you guys did, but diving deeper, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and so as as a director and you're, as you mentioned, you kind of go from genes to ecosystems. As a director, when you're in charge of that, I don't, I, I would struggle, like, how would you even try to manage all the different projects that would include? Cause like, I could see how you could just go, we're going to be, I'm just going to dive into genetics. I'm going to dive into ecosystems or one of these things. And that's plenty to do. So how do you kind of tackle that? Do you have different strategies? Do you have a mindset?
0: I think the key is having really good people. Uh, so I, you know, think very carefully about who we hire and uh, we've really just got a great team. And so I don't have to dive into the minutiae of, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a geneticist. I, I wouldn't be able to take on that role. That's fully our biodiversity staff, which includes a uh, our systematist, our conservation geneticist, and technicians. We also have a lichenologist, uh, so they do that, and I just watch and learn and uh, and enjoy. Um, then we have our rare plants team. We have our rare plant biologist and uh, and a technician. And uh, while I do some rare plant work, actually on the on the ecology level, you know that's one of those layers that sometimes comes into play when you're conserving a rare plant is. Um, does it have the pollinators that it needs to be able to reproduce and produce seeds Uh, and so we do pollinator network studies and uh, all kinds of things to to look at that layer there's you know just the ecosystem layer of uh gosh is is the fire regime changed is the hydrology regime changed Um, what's it going to take to bring this plant back and that's where our biodiversity team comes in as well doing uh population genetics and and looking at that layer uh, to make sure that you know there's enough genetic diversity in a population to have that cross-pollination to have successful seed set is complicated there's there's a lot of layers Um, so I'm involved a little bit in that of course I see all the you know contracts and projects come through and talk about them and all that but um, really I'm most involved with what we call the ecology team the the habitat restoration team
1: I guess just to kind of dive deeper into each of those tenants we talked about. When it comes to for the first one example, uh, understanding biodiversity, there, there's a little section there about uh, black holes. And when I first read that, I was like, now they're into cosmology. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> okay. do you mind to explain kind of what a conservation black hole is?
0: Sure, and that's a great example project of where these these layers can come together. So. When Matt, our systematist, came to the garden, um, when he was considering the, the job, he, he looked like a good botanist should, at you know, like what's known for this region and pulled up all the the records of specimens for this region and noticed what he immediately termed botanical black holes. Basically, there's specimens taken all over, but with these really noticeable gaps. Uh, And that, for instance, that might be in the Los Padres National Forest where the terrain is just really rugged and it's just really hard to get out there with a plant press and lug all kinds of plants back out. Uh, And so he called those botanical black holes and the project that we talked about on the website is uh, what we saw as an opportunity to fill in some of those black holes. And the opportunity was because of some wildfires that happened in this area, the Jesusita fire and the Zatka fire. The zaka fire burned over 240,000 acres. It was one of the largest fires in recorded history at the time. Of course, it hasn't been that long, but that's been eclipsed since then. Uh, and the idea was, OK, let's get out and figure out what are the plants out there. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, the goal of the, the funding opportunity was um, to, to try to restore uh, habitat to look for threats and problems in that area. So, first, we're looking at the botany. Second, we've got a list of over 40 rare plants that we're looking for, and we're taking all kinds of information about those populations so we can, you know, understand better you know, which are most at risk. Uh, And then we're looking for invasive plant species, which is one of the greatest threats to biodiversity. So we're also, uh, we've also got a long list of weeds that we're keeping an eye out for, and we're taking all kinds of data about those when we find them. So in the end, we put all those data together and we look for either weeds that are new to an area that just have a few populations, we could potentially eradicate them, that's the best way to deal with weeds, just nip them in the bud, Um, or If they're too far gone to do that we look for areas where they're really threatening rare plants and we can control them in those areas um, to at least you know maintain that biodiversity so that's an example of a project that really involves a lot of us uh, in the department and uh, touches on all three of those layers
1: yeah it's a it's a great way to bring the whole wide variety of the team together to do one really awesome project and you kind of talked a little bit about your, your specimens and the word I'm blanking on the actual word, but I guess that kind of leads into the, your rare plant program. When you take vouchers, that's the word, <laughs> as you're taking the vouchers, like how, how many, like how large is your collection and how long has it been, been collected? And is your geographic area, like constrained to the Santa Barbara area, the, the uh, Los Padres
0: uh, so our herbarium has over 150,000 specimens in it, and they they can be from all over California, but mostly our turf is the Central Coast and the Channel Islands of California. Um, so mostly Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, Ventura counties, and then all eight uh, California Channel Islands we've been working on for a long time. So we're the institution, the the, um, the official repository for herbarium specimens for Channel Islands National Park for example. So the garden's been around since the 1920s and uh, we've had the the botany going since the the early days. Uh, we have specimens as old as the late 1800s though.
1: Wow. I guess that kind of segue into uh, Channel Islands since you guys are you know the head honcho for plants in the Channel Islands. What is special about the Channel Islands when it comes to the, 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 the plant life?
0: Yeah, so much is special about the Channel Islands. Um, as far as the plant life uh, and the animal life, there are so many endemic species on the islands that are found nowhere else. There's over a hundred different uh, taxa of plants that are, are unique to the islands, whether it be one island or multiple islands. Um, so they're just, they're special in that way. Um, they you know, have diverse habitats and just a really wonderful um, kind of marine influenced ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, maybe a, they've been hammered by humans, but, but uh, there's a lot of conservation work going on. So they're special for that too. Um, another thing that's really cool about the islands, they, they just have, um, things happen on islands where you have plants that are a little more, you know, have more pink flowers or you have more gray foliage or you have gigantism, you have dwarfism. Uh, and so it's just, it's just a different world. It's really neat.
1: Yeah, I have to say that I think Santa Barbara is one of my favorite places I've ever been. And I still plan on moving there eventually. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, I've never been to the Channel Islands. I've been to uh, Catalina a couple of times, you know, as a kid camping or whatever. And it's, it's, been, it's been a huge bucket list item where I'm just, I can't seem to tick it off. It'll uh, happen.
0: It'll happen. At the very least, you can do an Anakepa day trip. Oh, That's e- yeah. easy to tick off. Yeah.
1: That's the really small one, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, one of, it's the second smallest and, okay. and the closest, so it makes it easier to do a day trip.
1: Yeah. yeah. You kind of already mentioned like, the, the big picture that you want, why you want to restore habitats, but looking at the section, I was kind of blown away by the, uh, uh, the hedgerows program. And do you, would you just mind uh, giving a kind of a, a background of why the hedgerow program exists and, and why it's important and what it actually does?
0: Sure, yeah. Well, you know, our farms are a really huge use of land in America and the world. Um, so it's a really important uh, influence on our biodiversity. It can reduce it or we can try to work with nature. Uh, and hedgerows are not a new concept, but they're coming back in vogue. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the idea of providing some habitat on the farm to uh, support pollinators and uh, other uh, pest control insects that um, can really make your farm more sustainable. Um, so hedgerows do not only those two things, but they also can provide windbreaks uh, so you can retain soil more. So they're a really sustainable uh, practice for for farms, and they've been shown to um to increase pollination services, basically you're providing habitat year-round for the pollinators to, to live. You're providing, uh, you know, uh, food plants essentially with the nectar, um, but also nesting habitat because if you're always plowing up your, your fields, you're plowing up the nesting habitat for all the solitary bees. 70% of our bees are solitary bees um, that are ground nesters. So. Uh, So you're just providing them a place to stay all year, so then they can pollinate your crops and you don't have to truck in honeybees to do that job, which, uh, along with all kinds of pollinators around the globe, are are struggling. Uh, So it's just a sustainable project uh, practice. It's um, one of the tools in the toolbox to make farming as sustainable as possible. Uh, It goes hand in hand with using uh, no or fewer pesticides. Um, and having diverse crops on your on your farm to provide some resilience, and uh, and not have this big monoculture that is, uh, you know, um, supporting fewer fewer critters, less diversity.
1: It seems like a, a good way to kind of use old tactics um, to push conservation forward when it comes to uh, agriculture. Um, where have you guys implemented this?
0: So this practice is uh, using being used more and more in Northern California, so around sort of Davis and Sacramento. Uh, and like I said, it's been shown to, to work to improve pollination services and so much so that it, you can recoup the costs of taking land out of production um, in just a few years. Uh, but it's less used down here in Southern California. And so really we just wanted to um, get some demonstration hedgerows going uh, on some farms around here and spread the practice by uh, seeing its its benefits so that the farmers can see uh, the changes that are happening and we can study how the insects change. And uh, then those farmers can tell two friends. Um, Because that's really uh, they're less impressed by scientific papers and more impressed by, you know, their their neighbor uh, saying, hey, I I saw this work. Uh, So we have three different farms in the area that we've been working with to plant native plants and a linear farm that's a lot of shrubs. Um, That's what a, a hedgerow is and just provide that that habitat year round.
1: So to finish off your, uh, your cake that you mentioned, the, I guess this would be the icing on the cake, um, the Engage and Mentor section uh, program. Um, what, I guess, what kind of programs uh, do you employ to you know, provide that community service?
0: Well, we do a range of things. Uh, we're on soft money and so we're always, we have to you know, work to raise our, our own salaries for contracts and things. But whenever we can, we're really fitting in, giving public lectures. Um, I go and, and lecture to UCSB, a couple of UCSB classes, conservation ecology and things. Um, we bring tours through to really just kind of come through the labs and the herbarium and show what we do and do some show and tell with some of our specimens. Um, like I said, we have, uh, um, we don't have a formal funded internship prog- uh, program, but we, we do have interns that, that come through um, that either have support from their university or are willing to volunteer their time. And we try to give them a, a diverse experience and, and we're working on a, a funded internship program. Um, what else do we do? Uh, oh, we have a, a conservation symposium that happens every year. Uh, so it ha- we have... Um, uh, an honoree, someone who's just a rock star in you know conservation of biodiversity, and we bring them an, in as the keynote and give them an award and a nice uh, honoree video and uh, and about six other speakers on a given topic each year. Um, this last year, we focused on getting kids back out into nature, and it was just a really great day. We honored Richard Louv, who's um, an author. Um, talking about nature deficit disorder and the benefits of getting kids back outside. And we just had a range of speakers talking about how, how do we best do that? And how do we get uh, diverse, you know, people of diverse backgrounds out into, uh, into nature to experience all the, the benefits of that.
1: That's great, that's really good to hear. I, I think a lot of organizations are moving that direction over the last decade or two. And, you know, we're starting to see uh, people in this field of more diverse background, which is great you mentioned the fire ecology uh, portion and those four fires you you the two fires you mentioned the zaka the Jesucita, the whittier and the um, thomas fire all in the los padres forest um what what kind of service did you provide for the recovery of um, those fire areas
0: well so I, I described our botanical black holes project and what came out of that was a series of recommendations of uh, you know weeds we could target to eradicate and other areas where we can control them and protect rare plant populations, and um, some of those recommendations are already being implemented by the Forest Service by their botanists. Um, they have limited capacity, and so we're also working. Um, we actually are are just uh, pulling in contracts for two new projects in the Los Padres that uh, are related to that, working on uh, habitat restoration and. Uh, we're working to get more funds and, and overcome some some obstacles uh to implementing more of them right here in our backyard in the Jesusita fire uh, so implementing those uh suggestions and then in the Thomas fire we're essentially doing the exact same thing um but with some added layers uh, so we're we're hiking around again on all of the accessible trails um and mapping the weeds and the rare plants um, but this time, we're using some apps on our phones, uh, which, which makes it simpler and quicker. Uh, and we're um, engaging community scientists in this, this task to see, okay, how, how many people can we get helping us hike these trails and looking for these plants? And how much training do they have to have already? How much botany knowledge? Um, how much can, can they help us? Um, and is this changing them too? Uh, you know, kind of taking away what, what we call plant blindness, um, really looking at the plants in a new way, and and telling which ones are native and which ones are weeds. And using iNaturalist, which is such an amazing tool, you can just you know take a picture of a plant and put it online, and then people tell you what it is. And there's even an AI component where uh, it can suggest what those things are. And so it's just really a cool gateway to people understanding and appreciating biodiversity. Uh, and we're, we're asking the question, can, can this be used as a tool to help us do this kind of mapping because fires are getting more frequent and larger and you know it's just an awful lot of work and there's rarely enough funding to do this kind of work uh, to look for these problem areas um, and, then, and then do the habitat restoration.
1: Uh, you said how, how much it costs to h- handle these fires and as we're seeing it at, 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 while, while we're recording this there's probably 30 fires across California and Oregon so yeah we're, we're <laughs> feeling it right now it's probably the orange haze outside <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well I did want to mention that the uh, community science program was another uh, thing we, we kind of forgot to talk about in terms of the uh, engaging the community and it's like look we talk about community science programs a lot in with other people we've talked to and it's just a we love highlighting it because it's just a great way to get people who could be they work at a bank or they you know whatever they do for a job they spend their free time in you know helping out with conservation and getting excited about plants or animals or whatever but what is it about native plants especially in california um, and maybe even your uh you guys's region of study why are, and this is kind of a vague question, but why are native plants important?
0: I love that question. I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, <laughs> and it, it relates to that plant insect interactions, uh, you know, thing that I study. Uh, and it's because native plants are biodiversity. They're the base of the food web. They're the, the on land. They're the main organisms that photosynthesize and provide food for everyone else. Uh, and you know, it's not the, the weeds that are bringing biodiversity, it's all those plants that have uh, evolved in that area and they've evolved with all those insects and you know, the right size and the right shape and the right hairs in the right place on those pollinators to pollinate those different plants. And, and it's, a, it's a wondrous thing. Uh, but like I said, they're the, they're the base of the food web. Uh, and if, you, if I can you know, approach it a, a different way, uh, you know, half of our world's biodiversity is, is insects and other invertebrates. Um, and a lot of them are, are herbivores, right? And so if you picture yourself an herbivore and you're eating on this plant, well, it's got all kinds of defenses against you. It's an arms race. They've got chemicals, they've got, you know, spines, they've got waxy surfaces and all kinds of things. And so uh, it takes specialists to get past those, you know, those, those barriers, right? So now we have diversity of plants, we've got a diversity of insects and pollinators and things too. And and that's basically forming the, you know, the the food source for all of these other things. Uh, For the the lizards and the birds, you know, that really rely on insects as a protein source when, especially when they're breeding. Uh, And it just on up from from there. So it takes all kinds, it takes that diversity um, to, you know, to form that web of life and all the services that we really rely on as humans, like holding our soil in place and providing clean air and clean water. And um, it's just uh, little appreciated how fundamental that is for our uh, existence and survival and thriving on this planet.
1: Personally, I started off in this field because I loved, loved wildlife, you know, because it's, it's easiest to... I, I don't know. Connect to for me, uh, especially birds. Um, and as I've over the last decade, kind of worked through my career, I, I've gotten more and more interested in plants. <laughs> and it's because of what you talked about. It's that botanical arms race, and they that interaction where they're kind of constantly fighting each other is I find so interesting. And how when you start to see how it like expands. Uh, colors and shapes and, and how the world is actually uh, shaped. It's, it's fascinating. And it just, the more I see it, the more I, I, I get into it. Um, yeah. I
0: got into it through a love of critters too, when I, I just have always just loved nature and, and especially animals. And when it came time to go to grad school I thought, oh, okay, I could, you know, in my simplistic worldview at the time, I could study mountain lions or oak trees and, you know, am I gonna go for plants or animals? And I realized that it's really the plants that provide the habitat for everything else. It starts there. So habitat restoration is all about the the plants. If you're restoring habitat for seabirds, it's about getting nesting habitat back and cover from predators and, and all that. So it really starts there.
1: Yeah, that's funny. I had a very similar experience and, you know, I was always, Really, same thing. You know, everyone says they don't want to be a marine biologist because they like whales, or you know, I, I liked raptors because they're big and they, you know, they're fast and they can eat things or kill things with their face, <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, it's exciting. But you know, when you actually start to see it now, I, I am a, uh, uh, I, uh, I have a permit for the El Segundo blue butterfly, which is like I never cared about insects ever until maybe two three years ago, and the, when you start to see it, the world opens up and. It's, it's pretty cool. And so I guess that was kind of my next question is, uh, what is it about plants for you uh, that, you know, what was it that turned on that switch? Because obviously, you know, when you're going into university, you're still kind of open to things. And then as you go to grad school steps and master's and PhD, you kind of need to, you know, at least enjoy it just because it's really difficult. <laughs>
0: Sure. Well, yeah, I mean plants are wondrous. They're they're beautiful. Everyone loves gardening. Uh, just that that growth and that new life and, and the food for everything else and the, the flowers are beautiful and seeing the, the different plants when you're out on a hike. It's all wonderful. And and a lot of my friends just, you know, were born loving plants. For me, it was born loving animals and realizing that it all comes down to the to the plants if you want to um, create that habitat.
1: Where did you grow up and, you know, I guess, what is it that kind of, um, as you kind of, you mentioned when it comes to, uh, engaging and mentoring at some point, you probably had that in your life, if, whether it was just natural or you had a mentor say, Hey, I think you're really going to like this. What, what was it that kind of made you that flipped that switch in your head that made you want to go into, uh, this kind of work?
0: Yeah, for me, it was actually really late, uh, I grew up in Lompoc, which is in Northern Santa Barbara County, a kind of rural community, grew up on the edge of town. So I was always playing in the ditches or on the hills or in the vacant lots and and playing with critters. Uh, So it was just kind of an innate love of nature, but I had no scientists in my life at all. I didn't know what these things were. I didn't know their names. Um, I collected, you know, weird dead things um, just because I was curious about it, but I, I didn't have a lot of mentorship or resources. So my first major was actually um, art and design. Mm-hmm. And that's what my bachelor's degree is in. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a, a, maybe a, a nature photographer, you know, National Geographic or something like that. I had a minor in geography. Um, quickly realized that wasn't really the, le- the life for me or maybe even my strength and uh, got a master's degree in biogeography. Um, thought, okay, maybe I'll be a professor. Uh, really liked that angle. Um, but ended up uh, working as a plant ecologist on Catalina Island for eight years. And it was really there that I, I realized um, that I really missed the foundation I didn't have of that hard biology. Um, I had made up a lot of classes, but, but there was some, some things that I felt were missing. So I went back to school and got a doctorate in ecology. Uh, and that's when I really found my mentors and my people, I would say. I think kids like hearing my story because, you know, a lot of us are born not knowing what we want to do and we take weird paths and just hearing that it's okay. Just keep following, you know, your, uh, sounds cheesy, following your heart, you know, just keep, keep looking, keep pushing for that thing uh, that, that drives you, that, that's your, your niche and, uh, and you'll get there.
1: We want to find, our tagline is find optimism through science. Um, most everything you hear about conservation, uh, in the news or the environment in news is terrible. Like, Hey, fires, climate change, whatever it is. Um, but we're trying to show people like you and your organization that this is literally the only reason you exist is to conserve r- rare plants and native plants and everything that you've already mentioned. I feel like that's perfectly exemplified with what you kind of already talked about, because you have a huge team of geneticists to ecosystem, uh, you know, ecologists with that said, I guess, what is it that gives you hope moving forward? Because as we've kind of already said, it's difficult to be into this, this position and you know, get all the degrees you have. What is it that gives you hope and what is it that kind of keeps you moving forward?
0: Well, in short, I think it's the youth of today. I think they're really empowered. And when I go to speak at a, you know, a university class and I see the enthusiasm and, uh, and the determination Um, that gives me hope that things are changing. Uh, I think the important thing is uh, one of the most important barriers to biodiversity conservation is that people are less and less connected to nature and so they don't care about conserving it. Um, And so I think just one of the most fundamental things that we can do is just get people back out in nature and experience all the benefits of it just reducing anxiety and, and exercising outdoors and the clean air and, um, and appreciating that biodiversity, all the different plants and animals, uh, getting them involved with iNaturalist. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do is just re-engage people to nature. And uh, one of the, the things that's not on our website yet is uh, how important it is that we can create habitat at home um it's a great way for people to re-engage with nature by planting native plants and creating habitat right there in their own backyards and watch as the life colonizes it happens every time every time i move i start you know i take out the lawn and i and i plant native plants and then you just see the the bugs and the lizards and the birds all coming in uh it works and uh, and it's fun and figuring out who those things are is just really great for the soul and also for the planet We can really um, soften our impact in cities by by doing that. If if you know if a third of us did that, um, it would really make a difference because that's one of the the a number one threats to biodiversity is just development taking you know that land out uh, of a natural state and into cities or farms. Well,
1: Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you keep doing the great work that you and the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden are doing. Um, If you don't mind, can you uh, share where we can find your organization on, uh, you know, online, social media, or or physically when we're allowed to do that?
0: (laughs) Sure. Uh, We're in Santa Barbara at the top of Mission Canyon Road, um, 1212 Mission Canyon. Uh, You can find us online at www.sbbg.org. All right, well, Thank you guys for your interest and your time. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, even though I'm an introvert, I really appreciate being able to get our story out there.
1: We'd like to thank Dr. Knapp again for taking the time to talk with us about the amazing work that the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden does. And please check out their website and follow them on social media at SB Botanic Garden. Producers on this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker, music was provided by a picture book studios please like comment and subscribe before you go if you haven't already thank you again for tuning in we'll talk to you next time